Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This week I was uh, uh, looking at famous last words of people and I came across recorded uh, words of people just before they were executed. Some of them were angry. A few were indignant, still pleading their innocence to the last. Others were clearly trying to be brave Some were inappropriately humorous. All of them were fearful, and only one was sorry for their sins. Not one of them said anything remotely like Jesus. Jesus wasn't angry, indignant, or fearful. He wasn't repentant. He had nothing to be sorry for. He offered no word in his own defence, and he made no attempt to proclaim his innocence. He blamed no one. Instead, he asked God to forgive those who were responsible. These were truly remarkable words. And on this Good Friday, it's appropriate for us to take a few moments out of our busy day to reflect on the wonder and the impact for us of these few short verses. And we're going to look at them phrase by phrase for a few moments. And the first phrase is this, when they came to the place called the skull. We don't know whether it was called the skull, which uh, in Hebrew uh, was Golgotha, and in the Latin was Calvary. We don't know whether it was because it was called that because of its appearance or because of the many executions that regularly took place there. Whatever the reason, this was the place chosen by the Roman authorities, the place authorised by Pilate for Jesus' execution. It was located on one of the main routes out of the city and it was a warning to all passers-by. Yet this was the place of sacrifice ordained by God from the foundation of the world. Abraham brought his one and only son Isaac into the region of Mount Moriah, we're told, in Genesis chapter 22 verse 4, and he brought him to offer him to God as a sacrifice. And we're told that he saw in the distance the place of sacrifice. Mount Moriah was where the city of Jerusalem was was to be later established and where Solomon built his temple. It's my personal conviction that the place where Abraham intended to offer his son in sacrifice before God stopped him was where God would, in the fullness of time, sacrifice his own beloved son. And the phrase in Genesis chapter 22 verse 14, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, carries enormous significance for us today. Several years ago I was in Jerusalem and I visited the place 
which is now, which is called Golgotha. They believe that's where Golgotha was. We went to a number of things in our visit. We went to, uh, saw the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the tomb where Jesus, the place where the tomb was, where Jesus was allegedly, his body was laid. And all of the places, there were, uh, they were beautifully kept. There were people there to show you round. Um, uh, they were a real tourist attraction. But when you went to the place called Golgotha, where Golgotha was allegedly supposed to be, it's a dirty, grubby bus station. Really was surprising. It was far from what I'd imagined. And it's ironic that the likely place of the crucifixion of Jesus is still a thoroughfare where people pass by every day and are completely indifferent to its redemptive history. They came to the place called the skull. There they crucified him. Crucifixion resulted in a slow, painful death. It was cruelly designed to cause intense and prolonged suffering. The Romans used it as a means of execution for criminals and rebels. The horror of crucifixion stood as a stark warning to all. And we're told that Jesus' crucifixion had been preceded by brutal beating and torture. And yet Luke, and indeed all the writers of the Gospels, give very little detail. Luke sums up what happened with the simple statement, they crucified him. As far as he was concerned, that was sufficient. There's no detailed and bloody account of how Jesus was beaten and eventually crucified. There is almost uniform silence over the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual sufferings of Jesus Our fixation with the minutia of what Jesus suffered, as demonstrated by Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, isn't replicated in the New Testament. It's as though the Gospel writers, some of whom were eyewitnesses of what happened that day, it's as though they knew they were standing on holy ground. They knew that they were watching something terrible yet magnificent unfold before their eyes. And they didn't want the brutal details to obscure the wonder of what really happened on the cross. There they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Luke draws our attention to the fact that Jesus was crucified alongside two others. His careful choice of words tells us that they were convicted criminals, deserving of punishment. In stark contrast, crucified between the two of them is Jesus, who is completely innocent of any wrongdoing. That fact is attested to by both Pilate and Herod. It's acknowledged by one of the two criminals, and it's endorsed throughout the New Testament. Jesus knew no sin. The ignominy of his death between two villains is the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. 
Jesus said, Father. The resounding silence from Golgotha is interspersed with Jesus' voice on seven occasions. This is the first of what are known as the cries from the cross. Marcus Lone in his book, The Voice of the Cross, puts it like this. The deep silence in which the Son of Man endured the cross was in contrast with the noise and hubbub from the crowd which passed by. But his voice broke through that reign of silence in a series of cries which linger in our hearing. They form the finest memorial of his dying love which we could wish to possess. Jesus' first cry from the cross, and in fact his last cry, are prayers. They reveal the deep, intimate relationship between Jesus and his Father. Here is no separation between Father and Son. That comes later. You remember the cry, Father, uh, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here, at this point, Jesus refers to his, uh, his dad as father, and his deeply touching love and trust in God is what we see. This cry comes from a life soaked in prayer. It's like a sponge. What, when you uh, soak a sponge, when you squeeze it, when it's under pressure, what comes out is what has been soaked in. And Jesus, in the most intense suffering, as he's uh, under pressure and under intense pressure, what comes out is this beautiful, wonderful prayer. J.C. Ryle says this, The prayer of our great high priest began to rise as soon as the blood of sacrifice began to flow. As Jesus' blood begins to flow on the cross, as he's under pressure, what comes out is this beautiful and wonderful prayer. Father. Father, forgive them. This is a truly amazing and revolutionary statement. Jesus, who had never done anything wrong and had given his life only to doing good, was unjustly suffering a cruel and barbaric death. Yet he cries out to his father, not for justice or vengeance, but rather he asks that God will forgive them in fulfilment of Isaiah 53 verse 12, where it says he made intercession for the transgressors. We struggle to conceive how anyone in such a situation could ask for those responsible for the torment they were going through to be forgiven. It's even more difficult to appreciate how the parents of a victim of murder could forgive anyone who had harmed their loved one. How could God forgive those who had harmed his son and hurt his son in this way? Philip Greenslade, in his book, Voice from the Hills, sums up this feeling when he says, The reason we are baffled and astonished when some people find it in their hearts to forgive those who grievously wronged them and the reason why we sympathise with even good and godly people when they cannot find it in their hearts to forgive is precisely because forgiving one's enemies seems difficult, even impossible to contemplate. And that's because it is.
What we see here is truly amazing grace. Jesus praying for the forgiveness of those who were instrumental in his execution. Yet there's something else that's surprising. As you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you come across numerous occasions where Jesus forgives people of their sins. And when the teachers of the law hear Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, they're outraged. They're furious. They know that only God can forgive sins. And so we see in those accounts in the Gospels clearly that Jesus knew that he was God and that he had the right to forgive sins. So why on the cross does Jesus ask for his Father to forgive them? Why doesn't he do it himself? The explanation is simple. In this situation, only God could forgive. It was God's plan to put to death his son Jesus on the cross. He put him to death as our substitute and our redeemer. It was the only way for mankind, for our rebellion to be dealt with. God is holy and sin must be dealt with. We are totally incapable of dealing with our sin. So Jesus had to pay the price that we might be forgiven. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. God in his justice cannot forgive men and women by simply saying, I forgive you. If God could so easily have forgiven people, he would have done it. Jesus on the cross was our substitute and our redeemer. And so he cries out, God, my Father, please forgive them. You see, we are all implicated in Jesus' death. It isn't just the people that we read about in the Gospel accounts. Our sin caused Jesus to go to the cross. If we had been there in the crowd that day, we would have bade for Jesus to be crucified. Mel Gibson in his film, The Passion of the Christ, as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, Mel Gibson actually, it was his hands in the film that hold the nails. And knock the nails in. And he wanted to do that because he wanted to demonstrate that he was responsible for Jesus going to the cross. When Rembrandt painted his famous painting, called the Three Crosses. There's a figure painted in uh, the foreground. And Rembrandt painted himself because he knew that he was responsible for Jesus going to the cross. Each one of us are responsible for Jesus dying on the cross. It was our sin that he bore. His blood is on our heads. We are guilty. Yet the one who hung where we deserve to hang asked his father to forgive us. How amazing is that? For those who've received God's forgiveness, and forgiveness has to be received. It means freedom from guilt. It means freedom from the consequences of our wrongdoing. We have become part of God's new eternal family. That is wonderful news. Wonderful news. Because we have 
being forgiven much, we love much. How true is that of us? Finally, we read the phrase, for they know not what they do. I find this staggering. Everyone knew what they were doing. Judas knew what he was doing when he betrayed him. The religious leaders knew what they were doing when they plotted and schemed to kill him. Pilate knew what he was doing when he washed his hands. Herod knew what he was doing when he had him beaten. The Roman soldiers knew what they were doing when they nailed him to the cross. And the crowd knew what they were doing when they bade for his death. They were all aware of what they were doing. So why did Jesus think they didn't know? Very simply, Paul tells us that if they had known that Jesus was God's Son, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. John Piper says they are guilty for not knowing what they are doing. They all fail to realise the enormity of their actions. Their ignorance was no excuse. Sin must be dealt with. Albert Speer, one of Hitler's aides, when asked about the death camp, said, I didn't know, but I could have found out. Not one of us are without excuse. The majority that day at the cross were indifferent to what happened. It made no difference to their lives. Judas showed remorse, but wasn't repentant. Jesus' prayer, however, was gloriously answered, almost immediately by the thief on the cross. Jesus, today remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise today. The centurion, we read a few verses later, says, surely this man was the son of God. We see 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks later. And this is true for millions throughout history who have responded and received this great forgiveness, won at great cost on the cross. And it's true of us this morning. And each one of us can only cry out, Hallelujah, what a saviour. The cry of our hearts this morning should be one of worship, that Jesus would die for us. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's wonderful that Jesus would die for us. We're going to sing a song, a worship song in response, and then we're going to break bread. And we're going to sing a song. It's an old hymn. It's an old hymn I remember that we used to sing regularly on Easter. It's called Man of Sorrows. What a name. The musicians are going to come out, and we're going to sit, and we're going to sing this together. And it's our response of worship that Jesus would give himself for us. That Jesus would take our punishment. That we would know forgiveness because of what he's done. And uh, we're going to sing this just as an, in an attitude of worship. And at the end of that, we're going to break bread. And uh, we're going to, I'm going to, you're going to come and just get some bread for yourself and maybe your family. Perhaps the person sitting next to you. Take some wine as well. There's plenty of cups. So take some bread and some wine, and I'd like you to just, where you are, 
Remember Jesus' death on the cross. So we're going to sing this and then we're going to break bread. I'll just read a verse from Corinthians and then I just want you to come out and get some bread and some wine and I just want you in your little groups of two or three just together very quickly pray and thank God for his great sacrifice. Personally thank him for what he has done for you.